Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We're ending the uh, study in 1 Corinthians probably in a couple of three weeks. Well, it'll be probably in the middle of January, I suppose, by the time we're really done. But in chapter 15, it's one of my favorite chapters of this book. And it's, of course, the chapter where Paul discusses the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body of believers. And in 1 Corinthians, remember, it's a letter of correction. And again, Paul is having to deal with some misconceptions that the Corinthian church had, at least some of them, with regard to very many different things. But in this chapter, it's a misconception with regard to resurrection. And it goes back to really the idea that is behind the common Greek philosophy of his day. You may remember in studying the book of Acts, Paul, on a second missionary journey, had gone to the city of Athens when he came down from Macedonia, uh, or uh, into that area of Macedonia, Achaia, and he stopped in Athens and he began to proclaim the gospel to a bunch of philosophers uh, in Athens. And the philosophy of the Greeks had to do with a very spiritualized version of life after death. They separated the body from the spirit, and they did not believe that the body could inhabit eternity. They believed in not a resurrection, but rather just a continuing of life in the spiritual realm. Uh, and the spirit was a higher form of life than the body had been. And when Paul had addressed their unbelief, one of the things that he had talked to them about in relating the story that he wanted to share with them regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, everything was really, really attractive to them until he came to the statement that he made regarding Jesus having been raised from the dead bodily. They, most of them, did not accept it. In fact, they thought he was a fool. A few of them wanted to hear more, but the remainder of them didn't want to hear anything more from him. They were not at all interested when he talked to them about the res resurrection of the body because that was contrary to their opinion, their philosophy, their way of life. Well, some in the Corinthian church apparently continued with that Greek philosophy, that Greek understanding um, of life after death. And so he has to address some who were saying there is no resurrection. And so Paul addresses that in a very, very strong fashion and gives evidence and gives uh, the reason that they need to understand that this statement that he has made regarding the resurrection of Christ is not only absolutely necessary for the believer, but it is the gospel itself or the completion of the gospel, I should say. And that's where he starts this chapter. Again, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which in which you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So here Paul is laying out the gospel that he has proclaimed to them. And note that it's not just that Christ came on this earth and died to take our sins upon himself. That was a part of the gospel. That was a major part of the gospel, but it's not the only portion of the gospel that is important to all believers. And he had told them, and he's written, and all the other apostles and writers of the New Testament affirm that Christ was risen from the dead bodily. And what Paul is saying here is, I delivered that gospel. This is the complete gospel. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are all part of and intrinsically necessary to receive these truths. And when we do so, then we have received the full gospel account. And Paul is saying, if you did receive that which I had taught you, then you are to hold on to it. And if you aren't holding on to it, then perhaps your belief was in vain. In other words, it is absolutely essential that you adhere to what this gospel has accomplished for all of us. The death, burial, and resurrection are all absolutely needed to be understood, applied, and accepted by every believer. Notice also that he says he delivered it to them, but he had also received it himself. He's not saying that it is his gospel of his own design. It's a gospel that he had received. It is the gospel. And by the way, the word gospel in the Greek just simply means good news. But it is the good news. And there's a lot of news in the world today that's not good news. And there may be some news that is somewhat good news, but this is the good news. This is the best news ever. This is the good news of God's having done such great and mighty and wonderful things for us, for our benefit. And we receive by faith that which he has accomplished. Notice also that he says, these things were revealed in the scriptures. He says, I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now the scriptures are primarily referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Because very little of any of the New Testament scriptures had been written by the time Paul writes this letter around 56 or so, or maybe closer to 60 A.D. But there were some of the gospel accounts. I believe Mark was written early on, and perhaps even Luke's gospel was written fairly early, although it's not likely that that would be something that Paul would here be referring to. But there were some New Testament books and letters that were being circulated around the time that Paul had written this letter. So it may be that he's referring to some of the New Testament texts, but mostly the Old Testament. We didn't really need or have the New Testament texts in there, certainly in their completion by the time Paul has written this, because this is one of the New Testament letters that we're reading. But Paul does acknowledge that 
the fact that Jesus died was acknowledged in the Old Testament scriptures. It said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So we go back to the Old Testament scriptures and we look to see, well, where was that actually recorded that the Messiah would die? And of course, we go to Isaiah 53 as our primary example of an Old Testament scripture that refers to the death of the Messiah, the one who would come and die for our sins. And Isaiah 53 is perhaps the most commonly referred to scripture in that particular context. You can also go to Psalm 16. And Peter actually quotes Psalm 16 in the book of Acts as he relates to the Jews in that very early time of the church's experience that Psalm 16 was written by David and it talks about the fact that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. In other words, that was an expectation of a resurrection from the grave. And certainly it was not speaking of David in that psalm, but it was speaking rather of the Messiah. So there were a couple of Old Testament scriptures in particular that referred to the death of our Messiah. But he also says, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's a bit obscure because there are no explicit scriptures in the Old Testament that refer to the resurrection. Now keep in mind though that Jesus himself had said that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. And he quoted Jonah as an example or a type of that which he was going to accomplish after having been put into the tomb for three days and then he would be like Joseph. Jonas was raised out of the belly of the whale or the great fish that Jesus would be raised up out of that tomb in three days. And so there's that precedent that Jesus himself had set. Also, you can always refer all the way back to Abraham as well with regard to this statement that Paul is making that the scriptures refer to the resurrection. Because Abraham was told by God that he was to take his only son Isaac and bring him to a place that he would be shown and he was to sacrifice his son Isaac in that place. And when Abraham committed to doing that which was spoken to him by the Lord, it took him three days to get to that place, the Mount Moriah, where he was to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, he began to proceed with that sacrificing of his own son, but God stopped him. And it was that three days journey that is a picture of the three days in the belly of the great fish, according to the story of Jonah, and also Jesus' reference to his three days in the belly of the earth. So those are Old Testament scriptures that do support the uh, concept of resurrection. Even though the word resurrection isn't used in the Old Testament, Paul is again, by type, by picture, referring to those places in the Old Testament scriptures that do imply that there would be a resurrection from the dead. In fact, that was what Abraham believed God would do because he intended to go through with the command of God to uh, sacrifice his own son, believing that God would raise him from the dead because God had already promised to Abraham that through Isaac his seed would be multiplied. So it is a wonderful um, 
picture of the resurrection, even though it isn't spoken of in a direct sense, explicitly it is implied. So Paul is referring to the scriptures. He's saying, I delivered these things because I received them. And he didn't receive them from others. He received them, well, other men. He received them directly from the Lord Jesus. Remember, he was in Arabia and he was actually there for a period of time. And I believe it was there. We're told that Paul spent a good deal of time down there in Arabia learning from our Lord Jesus who had visited with him and taught him the truth of all that he wanted him to be able to share to others. So that was Paul's learning place. And uh, he said, I received that gospel from not the men around him, but from the Lord Jesus himself. He says in verse 5, now that he's spoken of the gospel as being absolutely essential to our belief, our faith, he gives now evidence from the experience of others. And that's very, very important. He's saying later on that, yes, there had to have been a resurrection and the resurrection of Christ actually did take place. Although some of the Corinthian church did not believe that, Paul is laying out now a case for the veracity of that statement that Christ was indeed raised from the dead. And he uses the evidence of eyewitnesses. And he's going to list several here. And so it's very important that we understand in a court of law, you only need circumstantial evidence to convict. As long as there's enough circumstantial evidence to bring that conviction, our jurisdiction, our system of judging is based upon that as a likely means by which a case can be determined and whether or not the judge would either acquit or condemn that person based on the evidence that's been provided. In the Old Testament scriptures, we find that according to Moses' commands, that there needed to be at least two witnesses in order for a case to be brought before the judges. If there were at least two witnesses, then there would be no case allowed. So here, Paul is using that jurisprudence uh, in his argument here with regard to the resurrection. And he says in verse 5, Jesus, referring to him after the resurrection, was seen by Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, and then also by the twelve. Well, the words the twelve are referencing the original apostles. Now, we know that Judas was not among those men to whom the Lord had appeared and in the fact, the very first appearance, Thomas wasn't there. So why does Paul refer to them as the Twelve? Well, it's simply a way of referring to the original apostles, the ones who had been with Jesus and followed Jesus all the time during his period upon the earth and that he had chosen. And those are the Twelve, even though not all of them were specifically present at that particular time that Paul is referring to here. But he refers to them collectively as the Twelve. He saw Cephas apparently alone. And that's 
an amazing thing if you think about it. Remember, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he met with the women and he spoke to Mary in particular and told Mary to go and tell my disciples and Peter. Why did he do it that way? Well, I'm convinced that Peter was probably thinking, I've denied the Lord and he'll never let me be a part of this ministry. I've ruined my chances. And now Jesus, at the time of his resurrection, is implying to Mary that he wants to meet with Peter. That must have been something that might have caused perhaps Peter a little bit of uncertainty as he heard those words. Peter, he said, he wants to see you. <laughs> but I do know that the meeting did take place and that, that Peter was restored. As a matter of fact, Jesus had told Peter that when you are restored, you are to help your brothers. And so, if Peter had remembered those words of Jesus, perhaps that meeting with Jesus by himself was probably the most wonderful thing to experience. But he did meet with Peter separately, and he met with the twelve. So there's more than one witness already. But Paul goes on, he says, after that, in verse 6, he was seen by over 500 brothers at once of whom the greatest part of them remain to this present hour. But some have fallen asleep, or some have died. But 500 witnesses, that's a pretty substantial number of witnesses. Remember, the Jews required two witnesses. And even in Greek and Roman culture, 500 witnesses, if even only a handful of them were still alive, and Paul says most of them were still alive, that would certainly be enough to make sure that people who heard this story would understand that it is indeed a truth. But not only that, he says again in verse 7, after that he was seen by James. James, Jesus' half-brother, is likely being referred to here. He was a leader of the church in Jerusalem during the time of Paul having written this, so people would know who this James was that he was referring to. And he apparently also had a separate meeting with Jesus. Why? Again, Perhaps it would be because James did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah when Jesus was walking on the earth. It wasn't until after his death, burial, and resurrection that James became a believer. And Jesus must have met with James, and that must have also been quite an interesting meeting, if you will, where two brothers, at least half-brothers, got together, and the one looking at his older brother and realizing my oldest brother really is God. Can you imagine what must have gone through his mind when he met the resurrected Savior? But he met with James, and James is one of those witnesses among all of those others that he mentioned. And again, he says, by all the apostles at the end of chapter, uh, verse 7, that implies that they were more apostles than just the original 12 or 11 that had been remaining. Of course, Matthias was made to be an apostle later on after the resurrection. Paul was an apostle, and he's not referring to himself, but there were others. There were men like Apollos and, and some of those who were leaders in the church that were made to be apostles because they had known and been with Jesus and they had been taught by Jesus and that qualified them to be apostles according to the book of Acts. 
But Paul says then, last of all, verse 8, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. That's an interesting statement that Paul uses here, born out of due time. It implies a birth that took place before the full term had been completed. A premature baby would be one who was born out of place, out of due time. So Paul is basically using that as an example of his own experience to say that, well, he wasn't among those who were with Jesus, but Jesus certainly did appear to him and made him to be an apostle. It was by Jesus' appointment that Paul became an apostle. We see that clearly in the book of Acts. And so Paul is saying that he has also been a witness to the risen Savior. And of course, we know that Paul saw the risen Savior for the first time when he was on the road to Damascus and he was trying to bring a letter there to bring the, the people of God, the saints of the Lord, the church that were in Damascus, into a place where they would have to either deny their faith or be imprisoned or even worse, be put to death. Paul was responsible for the imprisonment and death of many saints of God in those first days before he became a believer himself. So he is one of the most unlikely witnesses, but he's still a witness. And he's the one who probably would be able to say, of all those who are witnesses, I am the least likely candidate to be a witness for uh, this truth that I am presenting to you. But God, by his grace, has made me to be an apostle. That's why he says in verse 9, these following words, but I, the least of the apostles, am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that statement. And that's something that we all can say and should say. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am saved because of God's grace and mercy toward me. He chose me. He made it so that I could come to Him and believe in the precious Word of God that gave me life. And by grace through faith I am saved. It's a gift of God, not of myself, because I cannot boast of anything. It is a gift of God. And that is what I stand on. I stand on the truth of God's Word to me. How He has promised me eternal life and given me hope and joy and peace and satisfaction in knowing that my God has supplied all my needs according to His riches in glory. I'm so grateful for this death, burial, and resurrection of my Savior. This is the gospel that I believe. This is the gospel that I preach. This is the gospel that I want others to know. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul is saying, That grace of God that was given me to make me who I am, That grace toward me wasn't done in vain because it made me to be a laborer for Christ when once I was a persecutor of the church. And having hated the church, having hated this sect of the Messiah who was purported to be raised from the dead, 
I now have turned from that hatred to a faithful follower, and I have worked very hard, perhaps harder than almost all of the others, because for much who is given much, much is required. Paul knew that, and that's what Paul is saying here. I was required by the Lord to do a great deal of work on his behalf, and I was doing it gladly. But it wasn't me, he said. It was the Spirit of God in me that made me able to do that. But the grace of God which was in me was what caused me to be able to labor more abundantly than they all. So he's not giving himself the credit. He's giving the Lord the credit. The uh, credit belongs to only him. But Paul was recognizing that he was used by the Lord as a, an instrument to proclaim the gospel to this Gentile world. And he did it faithfully and willfully until the Lord took him home. Therefore, he said, it was I or they, whatever it was, who preached this gospel. And as a result of the preaching of this gospel, people believed. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the gospel has been presented. He's demonstrated that there are hundreds of witnesses. The evidence is clear. Jesus was indeed raised from the dead because all of those who had witnessed that resurrection must have believed that that resurrection was indeed true. And not only did they believe, they lived it. They believed it even to death. And that's one of the things that we need to remember. In that early church, there were many who were martyred for their faith. The apostles all died with the exception of Paul, at the hands of evil men, at the, at, at, rather with the exception of John, at the hands of evil men. John apparently died of old age. Although evil men did try to kill him, uh, they weren't successful in that. However, the question would be, if there was no real resurrection from that tomb, how is it that they were willing to go to the grave saying that the resurrection did take place. It's one of the enigmas that the Jews had to face. When words began to spread about the resurrection in the early days, the Jews immediately proclaimed, well, the, his disciples came and took the body. Well, you think back on some of the things that you've been taught and some of the things that you've been able to read in the Word of God with regard to those days and the power of the resurrection, the experience of those guards who had stood guard at the tomb, and all of the various evidences that are presented in the gospel records, yet got to conclude that there is no other explanation other than the fact that he was dead and he was buried and that he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And it's so important for us to believe that that resurrection was indeed a final act of God's approval on what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. Our sins had been forgiven. He took our sins upon himself at the cross. But if he hadn't been raised from the dead, he would have been deemed a liar because he said he would be raised from the dead. No man takes my life, he said. I take it myself willingly. 
And I, he said, will be raised from the dead on the third day. And he was. So the tomb is indeed empty. And he is indeed alive still. And because he is alive, we are alive. That's our hope, the risen Christ. And that's what Paul is now going to begin to unfold as he continues to place before this Corinthian church and us this wonderful argument, this wonderful uh, apology of faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or vain, and your faith is also empty or vain. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. Then also, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. What a profound argument this is. He's saying basically, if Christ didn't get raised from the dead, then we all are still in our sins. And this argument is so very solid. It's so very profoundly put. And there is no refuting of this. This is a fact. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then there is no reason for you and I to remain as followers of Christ. Not only would they be putting Paul to the place of bearing false witness, but they would be putting Christ himself to the place of bearing false witness because he himself had said, I will be raised from the dead. Not only would Jesus be a liar and Paul be a liar, but so would the 500 who saw him. So would the 12 apostles. So would Peter. So would James. All of the witnesses would be false witnesses. And how ridiculous it is for anyone to think that that would be at all likely. So the evidence demands a verdict. That's the title of a book by Josh McDowell. And it's been in print, still is. There's a new copy of it. That's a new revision of it just in the last 15 years or so. But the original writing was written around 1982 or 3. And it's a remarkable uh, book of evidence Josh McDowell was a lawyer and he sought out to disprove the resurrection. And as he began to look at the evidence, he realized that evidence is sound. And that's when he wrote the book entitled it Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it certainly is. The evidence is plain. And the first Corinthian church, or I should say the Corinthian church, in this first Corinthian letter was being forced to admit that if, in fact, the resurrection did not take place, then there's no reason to be followers of Christ at all. But since 
He was raised from the dead, and since there are so many witnesses to that fact, then the resurrection is what we need to continue to accept and believe and proclaim as we walk by faith in this Christian walk. If in this life only we have only have hope in Christ, if there was no resurrection, yes, he was a good man, yes, he was considered to be a prophet, but if that's all we think of Jesus Christ, the healer, the one who lived and unfortunately died at the hands of evil men, if there was no resurrection, then our faith is indeed in vain. But that's not all. Paul goes on to say more about this resurrection and makes this statement in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What he's saying here is, as the first of the resurrected men who will be raised from the dead, it implies this being the first fruits, Jesus, there are more fruits to come. The implication is, since Christ is a first fruits, that there will be a resurrection of believers that will follow his resurrection. And of course, the word first fruits is a term that is a reference to a feast of Israel that was made to be an annual feast that they celebrated. And it's written about in Leviticus 23. Now, some of the men who have been part of our men's Bible studies have been studying the seven feasts of Israel. So I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail about this first fruits because, quite frankly, we'll be covering that uh, in a great deal of detail in our men's breakfast uh, in a couple of days. But I do want to say that what Paul is saying here is that Christ fulfilled a feast of Israel explicitly. As he did with Passover, and as he did with unleavened bread, he did also with the Feast of Firstfruits, fulfilled those Old Testament feasts as pictures of what he would accomplish in the time that he would live and die and be raised from the dead. So these are important statements that Paul is making. He says again in verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died already that would have been believers. They are part of a resurrection that ultimate, excuse me, ultimately will be, take, will be done and accomplished in the end days. Verse 21 says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now he's referring to the death that came through Adam's sin. The first man, Adam, was the cause of all sin and passed on the sin nature to all mankind. But by another man, the man Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, that word in Christ, that phrase, is very important because it is only those who are in Christ who will be made alive. Not universally all people, but all who are in Christ will be made alive. But all who were born were descendants of Adam, were part of Adam's headship. And his federal headship made it so that we all were dead in our sins. 
And when we believed in our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and accepted His offer of uh, salvation and redemption and His own righteousness in place of our sins, then we had been made alive and we will be raised up according to the Word of God in resurrection power in the last days, whether they are in the grave or whether we are alive and remain when He comes all of us who are in Christ will be raised up according to the word of God. Verse 23 says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And that is what we are looking forward to. That is what we teach and believe, that the Lord is returning for his church. And in a marvelous way, in a way that none of us can explain, we will be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul will go on to say those things later on in this chapter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we refer to the rapture of the church, the taking away of the church, or the snatching away, the harpazo of the church in the original Greek language. We will be taken to be with him. And whether we have already died and are in the graves, or whether we are alive and remain, all of us who are believers in Christ will be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul is emphasizing here that there is a first fruits, Jesus Christ, the very first of a large harvest that is yet to come. And then again in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's going to come at the end of the seven years of tribulation when Christ will reign for a thousand years on this earth and he will put all of his enemies, physical enemies, under his feet. He will reign with a rod of iron. And it says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death will no longer be our expectation. We will live forever. Death is the enemy that will be ultimately destroyed when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and eternity begins when the raising up of all of the dead who are in Christ will be complete. Verse 27 says the reason, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. The Father is accepted. Christ is accepted. Only those things that are under him shall be included in this all things are put under him. And then lastly in verse 28, and we'll end with this, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, God the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The hierarchy of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then all of the believers. There is a hierarchy in heavenly places that God will adhere to, that God will maintain, throughout all of eternity. And these things are spoken of so that all of us can understand we, as those who are in Christ Jesus, are part of this new headship, this new federal head that we have placed ourselves under by faith. Christ, our 
king. He is going to rule and we will reign with him and it will be a glorious time. And when we get further into this chapter, we will see how it is that Paul can explain to us and to this First Corinthians um, in this First Corinthians letter to the First Corinthian church, how it is that we will be raised from the dead. Because the question remains, what's it going to be like? Do we know much about the resurrected body? We know some. We know, for instance, that our bodies, though they are vile bodies now, will be changed into His likeness, like unto His glorious body, we're told in Philippians chapter 3. We know from the book of Acts that Jesus ascended into heaven. And we know that he met with many of his believers, his followers, after the resurrection according to the gospel records. We know that Jesus went into the room where they were hiding from the authorities they thought were going to bring them to prison. And he appeared to them even though the doors and windows were locked. So his glorified, bodies is able, his glorified body is able to manifest itself in ways that our human bodies can never possibly consider. We can't walk through walls, locked doors. But Jesus was also able to eat because he said, do you have anything to eat? And he did eat with them after the resurrection. And he told them, especially to Thomas, flesh and spirit are referenced in the gospel records as his glorified body, but not blood. He shed his blood. And so he says, flesh and, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But a glorified body, flesh and spirit, will. And so that's what we have to look forward to. And we'll describe those things as best as we can in our studies as we continue uh, in the uh, ensuing weeks. Now, next week, it is going to be the 22nd, which is the next meeting that we would have, but we're not going to have that meeting on the 22nd. Instead, we are going to be having our Christmas Eve service on the 24th. So we'll be getting together on our Zoom meetings um, after Christmas on the 29th. And we'll follow up with the remainder of this wonderful chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians then. So until then, God bless you. And continue to serve Him and trust in Him and to know that He is coming for His church. Amen. <laughs>